0: This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is best-selling horror writer, Michael Brent Collings. Michael Brent Collings is an internationally best-selling novelist and produced screenwriter. He wrote the screenplays for Barricade and Dark Room. It's Halloween week, everyone, and I thought it would be cool to get such an accomplished horror writer on the show. He has also written best-selling thriller, fantasy, science fiction, mystery, humor, young adult and middle grade works, even Western romance. Michael Brent is the only person who has ever been a finalist for a Bram Stoker Award, a Dragon Award, a Roan Award, and a Whitney Award. He's a frequent guest at Comic Cons and writing podcasts, and now he's here with us today. Here is my conversation with Michael Brent Collings. Michael Brent Collings, welcome to the Story King podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> awesome. So you're obviously an accomplished writer, but for those not familiar with your work, can
1: you tell us a little bit of your story, what
0: you do and who you are?
1: Yeah, as far as what I do and who I am, I'm a writer. I mean, uh, that's kind of all I do for a living. As far as being a human, I'm a dad and a husband and all those good things. I've written about 50 books. I honestly wow. don't know how many because after a certain number, you're just like, it's book three for the year or whatever. <laughs> um, but I've written a bunch of books and they've mostly been international bestsellers. I'm one of the top indie horror and genre writers in the United States, uh, which basically just means I sell really well on Amazon and and uh, sell there across the world. So if you're in India or If you're in England or places that have English speaking Amazon, you've probably seen one of my books on your feed at some point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've written movies and gotten awards and all that good stuff. And I just kind of live that dream life where I get to sit back and and uh, imagine crap and people pay me for it for some (laughs) reason. (laughs) That's awesome.
0: So let me ask you, because I was going to save this question to later, but you mentioned it. You've written over 50 books. How do you get to be so prolific? Like that's a lot
1: of content. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of answers and one of it boils down to just time. I mean, I do this for a living and I don't believe in the luxury of writer's block. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't mean to sound rude or anything, but there's a lot of writers out there who are like, I'm not feeling it today. And I kind of look at you as... <laughs> a police officer or a doctor or a sewer expert or whatever, and you don't get to call into work and be like, I'm just not feeling it today. You know, they mm-hmm. go, well, then you're what's called fired, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and artistic people, we have to recharge our batteries. And I'm not, I'm not saying not to do that. Um, but I do think you show up to work, you put your butt in the seat and on a day where I'm not feeling it, you know, I'm not, Writing a ton, I'll still be outlining, or I will be watching a movie and kind of doing story critique in my head and things Mm -hmm. like that. And so part of it's just a measure of showing up. Part of it is I work a lot. I used to be a lawyer at a Los Angeles law firm, and everything you've heard about the hours they work is true. And I work much harder as a writer. And my wife and I actually had like a a powwow recently where we sat down and kind of said, well, I've already kind of had a full careers output, you know, like I've written enough to fill up a whole 20, 30 year career. Mm. So I'm going to slow down purposefully for a while, but really it's just, I come in and I sit down and I'm less, unless I'm talking to somebody like you or dealing with my kids, you know, uh, imaginary or real problems Mm -hmm. uh, I'm writing. I'm working on books and I'm working on stories and stuff like that. And it's, it's just something that I've had a facility for and I delight to do. And if you have a facility for it and you enjoy it and you sit in a chair for 10 hours a day doing it, you're going to have a lot of stuff happen.
0: Now, do you work on multiple projects at once or do you kind of focus one at a
1: time? Um, I have, usually I have a major focus. And so there's one book or script or whatever that's kind of absorbing most of my time but that said i have like a patreon page and so i'll do projects for them uh, monthly and that's just google michael brent or search them on patreon if you want to find me and so i'll put up exclusive stories there that i'll be working on or if i have a project that a friend wants to work with me on or something like that i'll do that but usually it's like i'm working on this book and then there is overlap so part of the reason that i'm I have a good output is by the time I'm done with book A, I've already got book B kind of locked in as far as I've outlined it a little bit, or I've thought about it enough that I can just start writing. And, and so there's that kind of simultaneous output, but for the most part, like when we're done talking, I am going to be working on a screenplay and tomorrow I'll be working on that screenplay. And when that starts to sort of wrap up, then I'll, work on the next big project so it's kind of like a, a wall you know you have these big bricks that you focus on and then you putty in little crap around the edge right <laughs> so
0: basically your answer for being prolific is sort of like Stephen pressfield in the war of art do the work show yeah. up yeah treat yeah. it like a job because it, you know that's what every writer's dream is to make it their job so you gotta act like it's a job yeah and show yeah. up
1: and you have to respect that and and look it's hard and like if you're if you've had a tragedy if you've had a divorce or mm-hmm. you know one of my friends passed away this week of covid oh, and it hear. has been i am too get your asses vaccinated people <laughs> um you know and that's kind of hard to wrap my head on days like that or i have mental health that are real major mental health problems and if there's a day where i'm having trouble, you know, communicating with the universe because of that, that's a that's a health issue. If your friend died, if your mom died, if you're in the middle of a divorce, look, take a minute. You know, that's a a reason you would take a minute from any job. But if you're just sitting there like, "Ah, I feel like being lazy today and Netflixing it, well, that's cool. That's your choice. But then you can't bitch about not having a book under your belt. Mm. You know, those are the choices you kind of have to make is where you're going to focus your time and attention and effort. And if your time and attention and effort are binging the next thing on Netflix, more power to you, man, if that makes you happy. (laughs) But then you don't really have a right at the end of the year to be like, I didn't write my book again. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. When did you first start writing? Oh, I've been writing since forever. My dad was the creative writing director for a major, uh, English department uh, for a major university. And so I just grew up with it. You know, I can remember him bringing home this box and it had an electric typewriter in it. And it was like, it was like being taken up on the mountain, you know, by God and being like <laughs> all this, my son shall one day be yours, you know, because he said, as long as you're not hitting it like this, you can type it and here's paper. And, Oh, it was just delightful typing on that thing. And then, you know, bringing home computers. And as long as you're not doing things, you shouldn't all this, my son, maybe yours. And so I just, it was in my blood and it was in our house. And my dad was literally the world expert on Stephen King for 20 years. Wow! So we had horror in the house. We had screaming or typing in one room at all times. Wow, leading expert on Stephen
0: King. So I know you write in a bunch of different genres, but do you consider yourself primarily a horror
1: writer or do you not like that label? Oh, it's not that I don't like it at all. Look, my first priority is like feeding my family. And if you want to call me a horror writer and that will convince you to shovel money into my pocket, (laughs) you can call me that. (laughs) Um, I've always just kind of thought I'm that dorky guy who likes to tell stories. And that's why I'm kind of all over the place genre-wise. But horror is definitely something I know very well. And so I can default to it. You know, it's like, it's like somebody in the Olympics who is really, their specialty is the rings. And if they have to get up, they can do a good job on the floor exercise as well. But really, they're a rings person. And that's me. Like, I definitely, I could tell a horror story without thinking about it. If I wanna tell a romance, there's a little more analysis, there's a little more thought. But I also believe that all of these different genres, they work best when you use them together. So if you're gonna have a comedy or a romance, put some horror in it. Mm. And so being able to use all of these tools, it's kind of which one am I focusing on, but it's not that I'm just gonna avoid this whole bunch of them because I'm a horror writer.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, the psychology of horror always fascinates me. I'm, I'm a bit of a chicken, you know, I see horror movies, <laughs> you know, but they're never my first choice, you know, because when they're done well, they freak me out. I see an old lady climbing right. on the ceiling. I'm done, am done, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, totally. um, But, you know, is a horror writer just not scared as much as the next person or are they just really brave to face what scares the crap
1: out of them? Or what is the deal? Just enjoy it. Like I, if you go to the movies with me to the to the horror movie, I am the worst person there. I remember I went and saw Insidious um, and, and this happens with lots of movies, but it was just an image that stuck in my head there's this scare and in insidious and I had scored the really good seats, you know, like right behind the bars. So you can put your feet up on them. And this is before everything was luxury loungers and everything. So I'm sitting with my feet up on the bars and I've got my room and there's this kind of subtle scare in the beginning of the movie. And so not everyone caught it, but I did. And I went boo like that <laughs> and my feet and my hands all went straight up in the air. And so Half of the audience is like, what's wrong? Someone saved this poor epileptic boy. Cause <laughs> I was so freaked out. And that's me. Like I will yell and I will scream and be into it. And I think a lot of horror writers were kind of split down the middle. Half of us are like sitting there going, hmm, analysis, analysis. And I'm just enjoying it if I can. I love to be the scared one. And I, you know, every night I go up the stairs and it's dark because I'm I'm up later than everybody. And there, there's a little part of me that's like, yeah, that old lady's going to be crawling down the stairs, upside down, (laughs) and this is the moment I die, you know. But it's funny and it's it's enjoyable in a way, and it's like I get to live in a roller coaster. Right. It's like
0: this vicarious thing for me. It's like, man, I I hate being that frightened, (laughs) but it is fun, you know. There is a fun aspect to it. I know Stephen King once said he. He writes what he's scared of, you know, so that, mm-hmm. that, and I think that's interesting. And as a writer myself too, I'm always trying to like, you know, how can I make this a little more scary, you know, but it, it's kind of like, that's why I'm asking, you know, is it something you just, you don't have the fear or you just face it and, and you, you enjoy, basically you enjoy that yeah. sensation.
1: Yeah. And, and one thing that you'll find out with horror writers, nicest people in the universe, <laughs> Like, because I write all these genres, I meet all these different people, and there's nasty, catty, awful people in any big group. That's just life. But there are so few of them that are horror writers. And I kind of feel like it's because we're facing our demons. Like, everybody's got them. We're just dealing with them in front of everyone. Um, And so, horror writers as a group tend to be very kind and gentle, you know, like they're the last person to survive in in the horror movie like the horror writer would be the first one with the axe buried in their chest because they'd be (laughs) out there be like let's all just talk about this you know like i'm sure we can work this out we're all low conflict people you know we we are nice folks and i get that a lot though i talk to people and they're like you were nicer than i thought you'd be like they're expecting the horror writer to just show up with can i just carve on your face just a little bit before the interview starts i think it needs something you know right and we're just I'm just a boring dad. Right.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you're not some creepazoid that they're expecting to to
1: show up. <laughs> no. Nah. And which is probably a letdown. They're like, oh, this guy's just he's like, he's a Sunday school teacher. What boring television <laughs> this is gonna be. Right. <laughs> Do you have any personal favorite authors or books? Yeah, it depends on the day. I mean, I'm always reading, so because of my dad's relationship to horror. I love Stephen King. I love Dean Koontz. I think anybody who wants to write in the horror genre who hasn't read Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House, they should not be allowed to punch their horror card like it's not allowed. Um, I love Orson Scott Card. His writing is amazing. And my dad, whose name is also Michael Collings, He is he has got some astounding work and he's just a wonderful poet. And so he's someone I'll curl up with. Robert R. McCammon, Swan Song is just an amazing sort of I think it's gonna be one of those classics that in a hundred years it'll be Huck Finn. You know, we'll (laughs) be reading Swan Song because it's this snapshot of Americana in the eighties and nineties. And Hmm. um, and I'm always reading stuff I love nonfiction and reading about Abraham Lincoln and and, uh, World War II are some of my favorite things. So I mean, dork. (laughs) (laughs) Most writers are, I think.
0: Yeah. Now, so how much of your time do you spend reading? Because I know writers do read a lot, but uh, you're like a working author. So how much time Mm -hmm. do you split between reading and writing? And in a given week, how much do you read, would you say?
1: I don't know. First of all, I'm a dad you know and 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 i am an author and so it isn't the same as a normal job where i show up 9 to 5 and if i'm doing a con or something hopefully they come back get vaccinated people then i will spend less time doing things like that reading is a fun thing for me and i don't want it to turn into part of my job necessarily if there's a book everyone's talking about i'll try and read it and that is kind of a job thing. That's just market research. But for the most part, if I'm reading a book, it's, you know, I'll be cleaning the house and have my little earbud in and listening to a book on tape or an audio book. And I'll curl up at night and read some true crime thing because I like that stuff. And I just mostly do it for fun. So it's it's like everybody else. You know, I'll do an hour some days, or I'll fall into a book and my wife's like everyone here is starving to death and one of our children died because you were reading this book and didn't notice they needed food (laughs) um it's just a fun thing for me i i do like to read as a joy and i Mm -hmm. do try and kind of compartmentalize that from my crappy job parts of my job (laughs) right right Hey everybody, I just wanted
0: to take the time to let you know about my latest book, it's called Massimo's Mirror and Other Stories. It's my first collection of short stories. The book uses fantasy, science fiction, and fairy tales to create a world where a magical array of protagonists conquer their fears, battle forces of evil, and step up to meet their potential. Suitable for the secular and religious alike, these stories are full of symbolism and quirky characters, including aliens, robots, angels, demons, superheroes, gods, animals, giants, monsters, and dragons. And just the right length to hold the attention of children and adults alike, all 50 stories are crafted to entertain and make us see behind the veil of reality and perhaps teach something along the way. The ebook and paperback editions are available on Amazon. You can purchase an autographed copy on my website, storykingbooks.com. Also, if you sign up on Story King Books with your email, you'll get a free copy of my latest PDF resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. And now back to today's episode. Well, talk about uh, writing screenplays. I know you're working on one now. You wrote the screenplays for Dark Room and Barricade. How does the mm-hmm. process differ from writing a book? Are they easier for you? Were, and when you did write them, were you adapting from a book or?
1: The, so I, a lot of my stories grow up together. As far as do I adapt them? Like I'll write a screenplay version and a book version, kind of at the same time, and it's just a way of monetizing because I tell people my my job security is whatever my last royalty check was. That's all you can count on. And so if I can find a way to have sort of twin possible tracks of income, I'll do that. As far as Darkroom and Barricade, those were original screenplays. So I just wrote them on spec, it's called, which is where you just write it and hope somebody will buy it. And it's a very different process because like if I'm handing you a book, you know, I'm, I'm like, here's 100,000 words. Here's 10, 15, 20 hours of your time and for that entertainment, you're gonna give me five bucks. And that's a pretty easy transaction. You're gonna think, you know, Michael Brant, you have good reviews and people seem to like you and you were hilarious on this show. And we will make that exchange. For a screenplay, I'm gonna give you 10, 20, 30,000 words and you're gonna give me enough money to buy a house. And so the exchange is really, it's a different kind of a system. Hmm. And so like books are where I get my, my income because I have a readership and I have fans and stuff like that. And screenplays is much more speculative. So I have all my producer contacts and stuff, but gosh, if they option one a year, I'm thrilled. That's a huge chunk of money to just come in, but that's like not stuff you can count on. Hmm. So it's a very different kind of attitude as far as selling. There's a lot more pounding the pavement with screenplays and it's much higher stakes. And ultimately, it's I'm going to just hand it over. And that's a, th- a thing a lot of writers have trouble with because they're like, oh, I worked so hard on this mm-hmm. and it's my baby, which is nomenclature I personally. I don't want to offend anybody but i despise it because i have actual babies right and it's different like (laughs) i will hand over my book if you pay me enough money i wouldn't hand over an actual baby right um so they hand me all this money and i hand it over and like the screenplays that have been made into movies i tell people they were astounding screenplays i had grown-up producers calling And I say grownups because for real, I had multiple people say, I read your script and had to spend the night at my parents' house. (laughs) And so these are adults who were so afraid. (laughs) And you watched the screenplay, the movie that the screenplay turned into. And it's like, that's not a very scary movie. (laughs) Um, Because through the magic of Hollywood, they became "Eh," movies. And that is really hard for a lot of writers because you're used to this control factor where I write it and maybe I give it to you and you can have your little brain pictures, but that's up to you and we don't have to talk about it. Whereas with a movie, I hand it off to a producer and a director and they're gonna change everything. And there's some very good reasons for it sometimes. Sometimes there aren't. Sometimes like one of the producers called and just said hey i want boobs and i personally uh i don't want to judge other people like that's not my job and i mean that like i'm not looking down my nose at people but we've seen me too and the sexualization issues of hollywood in recent years and for a long time i have thought that's been a problem and so i didn't want to stick a random boob shot in some horror movie, you know, just so some kind of creepy producer could get his rocks off or whatever. And I had to deal with that. That's not sort of the thing that you have to deal with as an author of books. Because Mm. if I think this story doesn't fit this, or it doesn't need a boob shot, there's not going to be one. Mm -hmm. And writing a movie is collaborative. But the flip side of that, when I watched my first movie, with my wife at the credits it was such a nice feeling because she like reached over and she hugged my arm and she said you gave all those people jobs (laughs) and and there was some reality to that you know I came up with an idea that turned into jobs for a thousand people right that's a
0: beautiful way to that's a beautiful way to say it that was really cool yeah I was going to ask you but you already answered it I was going to ask you you know what it felt like to see what you wrote on film because it obviously takes like the creative visions of so many people to put a movie together, and it's not going to yeah. look exactly like your original version. And of course, Hollywood has their own rules of what needs to be in the movie, you know. So, but that that was a really yeah cool thing. What your wife said, I, I like
1: the 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 credits was wonderful. The rest of it, <laughs> iffy, you know, because because it is somebody else's idea, and sometimes that's delightful. You're like, oh, I never would have thought of that. And other times you're going, did they not read page eight because they (laughs) did it wrong? And there's goods and bads to that. But ultimately, like I say, they gave me enough money that I could support my family. And so I'm not going to complain about what they did with that. Mm -hmm. They helped my support my lifestyle of eating and drinking and having shelter. And I'm very happy with that. Right. I know
0: Stephen King, too. He said the same thing about like handing over the rights. Like... For him, he doesn't have like any problem. He said, "Like, let the movie be its movie. The book is going to be, you know, the book." And he doesn't really. Yeah. He's he's learned to not care what they're going to do with the movie, you know. So he just kind of sells the rights and and moves on with his life, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the only bummer I will say is when I read a review of a movie, and they're and they say screenwriter Callings did this horrible thing, and I kind of <laughs> want to go, but I didn't yeah. <laughs> you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you though right <laughs> yeah. it wasn't me
0: <laughs> i'll name the people who are yeah. responsible if you'd like
1: yeah. but and seriously like if you look cuz i don't want it to seem like i'm ripping on people because if you look at all those names in a movie and people are constantly saying why don't they make more good movies mm. why don't they make more original movies And I'm like, it is a miracle any good movies get made because (laughs) every single person in that credits list has total control of screwing up the movie. Right. I mean, it's just one person not doing their job can create this domino effect that destroys it. And I do remember watching one of my movies and I screened it for, you know, like I went into the production company and I watched it there because I was going to do the DVD extra questions. And I walk out and they're like, waiting for me. What did you think of it? And all I can think is, well, I think you gave me a lot of money. And I, I like you guys. <laughs> and I'd like more money. Uh, but I don't want to lie. You know, so I'm like twisting. And they go, it's okay. There was problems. They're not your fault. You know, and, and so they knew there was issues with it. Mm. And it wasn't because I wrote a crappy screenplay. But nobody thinks that when they see the movie, they they do think like, oh, who came up with this idea? And really, it was a series of mishaps that came up with that idea. Right.
0: <laughs> no, it's, I mean, I respect, I have a huge respect for the entire, you know, film industry creatively. Because, you know, as a writer, you know, there's so, it, your job is just done in solitude, you know. But to try to get a creative endeavor with hundreds of people in the mix, I mean, that's just... uh it's just kind of astounding to me that, it, like you said, that Insane. any good movie gets made. <laughs> so your latest book is Synchronicity. Is that correct?
1: Um, yes and no. So I have a book called Synchronicity. And then I have a new book on Kindle Vella, which is a uh, episodic. So it's released oh. in serialized fashion. And that's this book right here, um, uh, Possession. So mm. Synchronicity is the most recent book book, but I also have this other project that's happening as we speak as well.
0: Well, let's talk about both of them. So without giving too much away, what's the basic premise of synchronicity? We'll talk about that one first.
1: Synchronicity is really fun. It's a popcorn book. Like there's books that are not (laughs) out there to make a statement. They're just, let's have some fun. And synchronicity is about this kind of drifter who his whole life philosophy is please don't notice me. You know, he just wants Hmm. to get through things. And he bumps into what turns out to be an assassin. And the assassin has access to a machine called the sink. Hmm. And the sink allows the assassin to jump his consciousness into somebody else and then jump from there into another person Hmm. and into another person. And so he can infiltrate the inner ring of whoever he needs to kill that way murder them Hmm. and there's no way to link it to him you know he's got this three times removed he's never even near it and of course the main character of the story book it turns out he has got a facility with this machine as well and so he's kind of recruited to stop the assassin and he's a very han solo character he you know he's like i just don't want to do this he's a wisecracking guy and he wants to get out and get on to the next girl the next fun adventure and just really be noticed as little as possible on the way. And he's all of a sudden embroiled in this world stakes, like, because this assassin is operating with the go ahead of the highest levels of power who are Mm. aware what they can control with this machine. And so there's this little rebel group trying to stop the established authority with, every bit of resource and money available. And they've got like basically a little van with a lab kind of thing. And it's just a really fun adventure. And one of the fun parts about it is when you jump in the story, when you jump into someone's body, you grab a bit of their strength and some of their uh, attributes, some of their knowledge and their best qualities. And so, when they need to learn something, they could jump into somebody who does karate and grab that or oh, hacking awesome. and grab that. And it was really fun playing with that kind of knowledge stealing. And also that each time they, they do it, they get physically stronger and faster. And so they're mm. dealing with kind of superheroes, mm. but superheroes with real physical bodies. So like they could punch a hole in a wall but it will still shatter every bone in their arm. (laughs) And so for the rest of the fight, that arm is off limits. And just, it was a lot of fun playing with things that I, a lot of my books are always like, I wish someone else had done this. I wish someone had done a superhero movie where afterwards, the first thing they say is, ouch. Right. (laughs) And, and so that's kind of a fun dichotomy to play with is superheroes that really get injured. And, could die and are at a supreme disadvantage five minutes after they're finished being superheroes. (laughs) Right. I mean, that would be uh,
0: the superhero would have to really make choices about who he saves that day. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's time limits built into the sink, the machine that, that allows you to do this, you know? So there's a a lot of thought involved. It's not just, I have ultimate power and no consequence because Mm -hmm tomorrow I'm not allowed to use the machine because my brain's recuperating and I've only got 48 hours to do this part. And so, yeah, there's definitely a planning. And, uh, when the bad guys have more of everything than you do, and can use all the spy satellites in the world and track you that way, it really makes a fun underdog fight, um, which is these kind of three people ultimately who, are trying to stop the world from being fundamentally reshaped uh, Hmm. in a way that no one will ever notice, but will harm everyone. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm always fascinated
0: with that. I With the concept of consciousness being that malleable, you know, I love that idea. So Mm -hmm. that sounds like a book I'd I'd have a lot of fun reading. And uh, the other one you said is called? Possession. Possession. What's that one about? Um,
1: That one is about, so it's a... Kind of an ivy league high school you know one of these private high schools this one is a little different it's a continuation school um and for those of you who don't know what that is that's essentially next stop jail you know mm-hmm. this is for super rich kids with severe mental issues you know that they're they act out against authority and they're awful and these are the kids who will set fire to each other <laughs> given the chance and on a Memorial Day weekend, a bunch of the worst kids are called in for detention. No shock there. Uh, but while they're there, armed gunmen come in and quickly, very carefully and easily, because they've planned it all, take over the school. Wow! And then alert the police via a series of videos showing them executing people at the school. Oh, man. And so the police come in and have to set up a staging area and figure out what these people want. And the first thing they think is terrorists, um, something kind of basic like that. But as the story goes on, you start to understand that the person who is the bad guy is doing something very purposeful. And hopefully by the end of the book, the people reading it are thinking, I don't know if I'd call him a good guy, but would I do different in his shoes? Not sure. Um, Because he has reasons for everything he does. And that's one of the things I like to do is start out with a good guy and a bad guy and 20 pages in have the audience go, wait, I think the good guy is the bad guy and the bad guy is the good guy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So so there's definitely a lot of that in possession. Um, But I do say it's one of the few that I've written, even though I write horror, this one's a trigger warning story. There really? is some very, very, very harsh stuff that happens in it. So if you are have any trigger issues, just read something else. Read Synchronicity.
0: <laughs> and this one's being released in episodic installments?
1: Yeah, it's on Kindle Vela, which Vella. is, yeah, it's an episodic release. You can only get it on Kindle in the US, okay. uh, either on the website or on the Kindle, um, the actual Kindle's or your, I think it's on iPhone as well. Um, And basically you read it and the first three chapters or episodes are free. And then after that, you can purchase little unlocked tokens. I think buying the whole book, it's still like six or seven bucks. It's not, Mm. it's not opprobrious or outrageous, but the fun is instead of binging your book, you have to read it when I tell you, you can read it. Right.
0: Now I got a question. Do you work with a traditional publisher, or do
1: you have your own publishing deal at this point? Nope. Um, I'm a hundred percent indie, awesome. and, and I have nothing against traditional publishers. Mm-hmm. I think if they offered me the right deal, I'd take it. It's hard at this point because I have. They'd have to offer me a, a decent chunk of money, you know, and they're not going to want to do that because then they're also competing against 50 Michael Brent books that are already out there. Uh, so that's a tough choice for him. But I think traditional publishing is awesome as well. It's just not the course that fate has allowed for me.
0: Well, it's it's really interesting, right? Because most indie writers are are, you know, they have a hard time trying to to build a successful career, but, uh, you seem to have been able to, to do it. I mean, is it just because you perhaps just take it more serious? Like you said, like you, you really treat it as a job. Like what would you say is the secret to being a successful indie author besides being talented? That's a given. (laughs) Oh,
1: well, yeah. I mean, working hard at your craft is helpful because it doesn't matter how much luck or marketing you do. If you're product is terrible (laughs) right? and everyone hates it. You're going to have a hard time with it. And, and I don't think I'm Shakespeare, but I think I can put sentences together in a reasonable fashion and be clear about it and tell kind of a fun story. And and that's good. Other than that. Yeah. There's a, a work ethic. There's certainly luck. And some luck is, I'll tell you what I tell folks, being a writer is great because it's like going to Vegas playing at the craps table and betting with house money. You never run out. You can try as many times as you want and never stop. The only thing is in between each roll, you know, you roll and you lose and you look at the person and say, okay, I need more money. And they say, sure. And then punch you in the groin as hard (laughs) as they can before handing you the money. (laughs) and it's like so you have to be willing to take the punishment and Mm -hmm. the pain and for most people they're like "Mm, hard pass I don't feel like getting nut punched today for that (laughs) and nobody would look weirdly at them and be like are you sure because my friends all think being punched in the groin is great you know (laughs) they're like that is a very good decision (laughs) and that's kind of writing you have to be willing to take a lot of pain and it is a lot of luck I mean I can be really good at flicking my wrist, but if it's not gonna come up the right number on the dice, it's not gonna come up. And you have to be willing to have a support group. Um, my wife is, i she's kept me alive. And I mean that literally, cause I have severe mental health problems. So without that support group, I'd be dead in a ditch, much less being able to get a readership. And I do, have a support group as well in that I've tried to be nice to people. I think it is important to be kind. You have no control over whether you're the best in your industry. You just don't. You do have control over how kind you're going to choose to be to others. And so I remember a couple of years ago, I had a really bad slump and the industry changed, which does constantly advertising changed which it does constantly i sold nothing and i emailed my fans you know the six people who still cared and i was like i have i'm quitting i have to be done and it's not i'm a failure it's i can't afford to do this and take care of my family which is my real priority Mm -hmm. and i had made the decision i sent the email And immediately got several emails and texts from quite well-known authors who basically said, that's not acceptable. (laughs) The industry needs your books, and the industry needs you. And and look, they like my writing, but mostly I think they were saying, like, we like you, stick around. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to have a career, treat others like they matter. I mean, they're your readers, they're your peers. There are people who are going to interview you, you know, like and I would hope if you and I bumped into each other on the street, like I'd sit down and we'd hang out, you know, because I think people are just miraculous. They're amazing. And I'm constantly astounded at how many cool things people do <laughs> like. It boggles me. We're, we're talking online right, on a little computer with a little camera and somebody invented that and that just blows me away. And the world is full of that stuff. And I think if you have kind of that joy and appreciation, people will notice that and they'll gravitate to it and they'll want to support you. Hmm. Um, So uh, like on my Facebook page, I actually have on my fan page, the top post is called share the book love because I kept all my books on sale for over a year during Hmm. the coronavirus stuff, just to help out. And my family and I took like a 90% hit per book. Wow. And We managed to keep it going because people spread the word but eventually you know we've kind of turned a corner and i wrote and said i can't we can't afford to keep doing it we need to eat and have a shelter and all that thing Mm -hmm. and my fans immediately said i got all these emails saying i'll donate 10 dollars. i'll donate 20 bucks i'll donate 100 bucks not to michael brent but to people who still can't afford the books Hmm. and so there's this nice thread of like i need a book I'll buy you a book. What book would you like? You know, and they're helping each other out, and I think that's one of the biggest things. If you want to have a future as a writer, is develop that kind of interaction with humanity, not just with your fans, but just be a good person, (laughs) you know, and and try and build bridges instead of burning them. A lot of people are artistic, and it's like, oh, I'm edgy, and I. Say it like it is. And I always hear when people say, like, I tell it like it is. I go, So that means you're going to act like a douchebag and expect a free pass <laughs> for the next right, five right. minutes, right? Because that's what it really means. How about if we don't tell it like it is? How about we tell it kindly and try and help other people find good answers? Right. Um, and recognize that their good answers aren't necessarily the same as mine. I live my life a certain way. I am a Sunday school teacher. Oh, well. uh, but I, I know. And, now, and I'm a horror writer. So now you're like, where is this guy coming
0: from? I'm uh, I, You just got me locked in so much more. I'm so much more fascinated with you right now. So we're going to circle back to that in a second. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but look, like just, I have my religious beliefs and my afterlife beliefs and my family beliefs and all that. And they work for me. And I think they would work for a lot of people and in a one-on-one discussion We'll talk about that. But ultimately, if you go away and you're like, nah, that doesn't work for me, I'm going to be like, cool. Well, I wish you the best and I hope you're happy. And I think the world could use more of that last part, less screaming and yelling and more like, well, how can I help you be the happiest I think you can be? And failing that, how could I help you be happy, the happiest you want to be? Because those are two different questions. Right. And, and having respect for that difference is important. Yeah. And, and, you
0: know, you said telling it like it is, uh, and people expecting a free pass, (laughs) you know, it it reminds me of the Bible verse, right? Uh, speak the truth in love. You know, there's a way to be kind and still tell it like it is at the same time. So, so speaking of which, so you're a Sunday school teacher, you write hard. Did your, did your pastor or anything have a problem (laughs) with your profession? You know, like, like, dude, you're writing like really sick stuff. You're not incorporating this in the Sunday school lesson, are you?
1: <laughs> no, he um he actually reads so in my faith, it's a calling, it's not like a job, and we just we're a lay clergy, and so it's he works for a business that actually makes like personal safety devices like for COVID and stuff, and that's his job. And he calls me, he's like, Hey, you say interesting and not doctrinally questionable things during sunday school so why don't you take over teaching okay and and it kind of that's how it works and i was delighted to find out he's actually huge he's a huge fan like he buys all my books he reads them within hours (laughs) um we were actually in a church kind of a coordination meeting where all the church leaders because i'm actually the sunday school i'm not the teacher i'm the president so i i'm the boss of all the teachers and, and we're sitting in our correlation meeting with the president of the Sunday school and the men's group and all this. And the bishop, he's talking like, we need to get everyone together for the welfare reform. Oh, Michael Brent, I finished Darkling Smiles last week. We need to talk about that. <laughs> it was like the weirdest middle of church call out of one of my books. And it was really hilarious and, and funny. And before I moved into this area, my last church guy He was my scary movie guy. Like we go and see scary movies together. There's a lot of church people who like scary movies.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's very cool. I mean, it it just shows you're just very multifaceted, and and it also uh, fights against the stereotype of what a horror writer's actual personality is. You know that that you know you can find all kinds of people in all walks of life, and and we're all these multifaceted individuals and I think I think it's awesome. So that's why I just wanted to yeah. talk about it a little more because I think it's really cool.
1: If all I am is like I'm a dad and that's it. That sucks. <laughs> you know, all I am is I'm a husband and that's it. That's lame. Like we're these epic creatures and if I just peg you with one word or two words and walk away, that's a huge loss for me because there's a billion things that you could teach me and improve about me. And hopefully vice versa. And I I think, you know, now especially it's like, oh, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're a red stater, you're a blue stater, you're a vaxxer, you're an anti vaxxer. And it's like, well, I'm also a billion other things. Right. (laughs) And those things are super important. And maybe we should talk about some of those because then we can find out where we come together as well as just this 1.1% of human existence where we disagree.
0: It, it's so important. I had a guest last year who said it's such a profound thing. He said, "I feel like we're losing nuance as a society," and I think he just nailed it right on the yeah. head. That that we're reducing people to like one thing, and it's and it's awful. And you know, and if you talk to yep. any of those people that you're cursing at on Twitter or whatever, you'd probably get along with them quite well in person (laughs) seriously you know like i have friends who you know very conservative very liberal i get along with all of them you know but if they were strangers you know on twitter i'm not the type of person to rant on anybody anyway you know in person or on twitter it's just not my my thing but Mm-hmm. but i think a lot of people like yelling and cursing at everybody and reducing everybody to uh idiots because of whatever they believe in it it's just such a
1: travesty <laughs> we need to be better because i hear oh this person's irrational or evil or stupid and i have met very few people like that and i've met more people than most just because of the nature of my job and really what it is is this person's had a totally different background experience from me mm-hmm. and is operating with a different set of vocabulary and a different set of world understandings. And me calling him stupid or irrational and, or evil, it actually just labels me as lazy mm-hmm. because I don't take the time to understand where they're coming from. I think there's hills worth dying on. I think there are some stands that we as humans need to decide to take, Mm -hmm. you know, like I said earlier, I'm not going to write a boob scene in my movie because I think those hurt the world personally, but 99.999% of our lives is not spent on those hills. We don't need to focus on that moment where we're worth that are worth dying over when there's all these other things that need fixing that we actually could fix together. And, and I do think it's sad. We find this focal point of disagreement and we're like, that's going to define our relationship. And we'll never again have anything outside of that. Right. No, I, I agree 100%. I
0: wanted to just circle back to one thing just for clarity. You know, when you said you have to be able to take the pain and you said it's like getting punched in the nuts. <laughs> when, <laughs> when, when, you met, when you said that, are you talking about like not making sales? Are you talking about uh, harsh crit? Uh, critics about your books or whatever, like you have to be able to have the fortitude to to, to just go through that. Is that, is that the nut punch metaphor in a nutshell?
1: Oh, <laughs> all of it. Yeah. I mean, every hardship and sometimes the hardship is I'm making money, but this one critic I, I respect hates me or doesn't hate me. But like, I had a review that said he's, it, it kind of said he's a misogynistic racist and, wow people who know me would be like, whoa, because I don't know, just those words kind of scare me. Like those are bad things, you know? (laughs) And I'm sure I, I'm sure I do things based on my gender and my race that I'm not even aware I'm doing. And that's cultural bias. We all have to deal with and that's important to deal with. So I don't want to minimize it. Um, But I'm, I'm definitely not a person who goes out of their way to hurt other people. And I've traveled a bit more than a lot of folks, and speak several languages because I adore other cultures. And that hurt. Not that they took it out of that, but that they thought I was that thing. Right. And so that's you know one punch. Having a year where I'm like, gosh, I think I'm gonna have to drive pizza because I can't take care of my family. Mm-hmm. That's a punch there are all these different things that go into being a writer and they're all of them, they have this tremendous capacity and possibility for joy. But whenever that happens, you're also going to have the flip side. So every time I finish a book, it's this wonderful, joyous occasion, but every book, my wife knows it happens. Like I'm going to walk down the stairs and be like, this is the one where they find out how bad I am because I'm. I, it's just the worst, <laughs> and and so it's you have to be able to take all of those little and big problems and either push past them, break them apart, or find some way to just live with them because they don't go away. And when people do say negative
0: things about you you know, online or whatever, do you respond or do you just ignore Like, do you ever like actually respond? Never.
1: Okay. No, I think the only time I'm trying to think if I've ever responded, I get upset when they call my fans names. Mm. That is upsetting. Um, and, And they don't call them names so much as, you know, like if I have a book with 600 good reviews on Amazon and they're like, these, obviously he got all his friends who are idiots to vote for him. And I'm going like, first, I am not that likable. I do not have that many friends. And second of all, you're calling this whole class of people idiots because you disagree with them. And that's not very cool. So, I but other than that, I really, look, it's a free country. And I'm hoping that I'm going to put up a book and be showered with money. So you can't even see me just like, the top of my bald head sticking out over the gold and the flip side is that i have to let people take their shots as well they have to say i hated it Mm -hmm. and that is much harder in the beginning for new writers having one bad review now for me i've got ten thousand good ones right and i can let that one bad one kind of wash off and you know i have publishers weekly picks up my books and likes them. And so if jomopodcast.com books for 3 and it's like it's literally a readership of 3 people if they hate it I can go well publishers weekly liked that book. And that and it balances it as sort of a mental proof. When you're starting out it is so much harder. And there is so much more tendency to take it personally, but you cannot do that. Hmm. You have to just push it aside. If one person says something, who cares? You're the writer. You're the boss. If 50 people say this person doesn't understand adverbs, (laughs) maybe you should pay attention to that. And I do. Like there's times where I've noticed a trend in criticisms and I'm like, well, I'm going to I'm going to work on that. Hmm. And that's, that's an awesome thing, but you won't get anywhere calling them up and saying, I do understand adverbs and you're a poop head, (laughs) right? (laughs) That's, they're not going to change their mind. If you win that as an author, you're a bully. (laughs) And if you lose that, you've got someone who's going to bully you. So just let it go. Let it go.
0: Very good advice. I got two questions left. You got time for two more? You got it. Uh, This first one is more of like a key takeaway question. It's, what is the secret to writing good horror? Because I'm sure many listeners out there aspire to do that. What advice can you give to some of them who are very early on in their career right now?
1: Mm, Definitely read a lot of it um, just because you have to know what works. And a lot of writing isn't conscious, It's your subconscious remembering everything you've ever written and putting it together, or read and putting it together in a fun way. Mm. And so the more you've read of that genre, um, the more you've seen, go see horror movies and, and analyze what works and what doesn't. And don't be afraid to steal stuff. You know, people get all on their high horse about originality. All originality is, is you took someone else's idea and made it so much better. It's unrecognizable right. um, because there really aren't that many original ideas. So go out there and find what works and steal it and make it so much better. No one would ever think to say, oh, well, this is just like Nightmare on Elm Street because you've created your own thing. But I do think you have to be well-versed in the, in the genre and you have to be willing to talk about what scares you. Hmm. Very
0: good. Last question. This is just a fun question. I've been asking a bunch of my guests. If you could have one superpower, what would it be and why?
1: Oh, that's easy. I would choose. I've been asked this question, believe it Really? Or not. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, not on a podcast, but it, was like it came up on a, on a date or something. And I actually <laughs> used it on dates after that. Uh, it was a real date killer. My superpower would be to make everyone see how amazing they are. I think 99.99999% of our problems as humans stem from our fear that we're inadequate. And mm. I so rarely meet people who are inadequate. I meet competent, consequential interesting, amazing people who are stunningly unaware of those facts about themselves. And I think that we need more of a sense of our, of our greatness. And I'd use it on me, by the way, because I certainly have days where I just feel like I crawled out from under the fridge. <laughs> well, that's an awesome answer. I can
0: see why you used it on dates. <laughs> it makes me sound good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Michael Brent Collings, if people wanted to follow you
1: and purchase your books, where can they go about doing that? Uh, easiest way to do it is just Google my name, Michael Brent. I am the only Michael Brent in the world. It's all one word because my parents are like, he's going to be small and smart. Let's make <laughs> his life even worse by giving him a weird name. <laughs> you can also, if you're in the U.S., text the word books to 66866 and I'll sign you up for my uh, email list and give you some free books. Uh, But yeah, Michael Brent, super easy to find. Just look for this devastating, super attractive mug and, (laughs) and follow the beauty.
0: Awesome. Well, Michael Brent Collings, I'll make sure those links are in the show notes. And thank you so much for sharing your story and joining us on the Story King podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Michael Brent Collings. All of his links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to check out storykingbooks.com. Also, you can follow us on Instagram. The username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips, and quotes from famous authors. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash storykingpodcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You could choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash Storyking. All those links I just mentioned will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media, subscribing to it, and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, a show about the art and business of storytelling and living life. Please join us next time. Until then.